turning now to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22 and verse 29. Matthew chapter 22, verse 29. Jesus answered and said unto them, Ye do err, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. And our subject is authentic revelation. Now the Lord, in this passage, is answering, addressing the Sadducees, a very large section or sect among the Jews of those days. They believed very little of the Jewish faith, really, uh, but they were devout in their Jewish nationalism and their worship, but not great believers in the doctrines, even which were before them in those days. And they didn't believe, as is recorded here, the resurrection, and they were trying to trip up Christ about the resurrection and dismally failed to do so. But that doesn't so much concern us. It's the reply of the Lord. Jesus answered and said unto them, Ye do err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. And that's very important. The power of God. What does he mean by that? Well, the workings of God. The mighty power of God. But it flows out of knowing the scriptures. Ye do err, your great mistake is, you don't know the scriptures. And our translation says, nor the power of God. But the uh, sense of the passage is that because you don't know the scriptures, you don't know anything about the power of God. The power of God is more than just raw power. You may think from our perspective that uh, a thunderbolt, uh, lightning, is uh, capricious in its way. There you see it. Where's it going to strike? Well, you cannot tell. You have no idea. It seems to be random from our point of view. Maybe here, maybe there. Well, the power of God isn't like that. Or like the power of a car perhaps and an engine but there are serious faults and it isn't uh, drivable it's controls, it's steering column, it's pedals are somehow damaged or out of action. What is useless power? There is power under the bonnet but uh, it can't be intelligently directed and used. But God's power is nothing like that it's so combined with his will and his purpose, what God has determined to do by his mighty power, he will do. It's always operating together. So when you think of the power of God, you must think of the purpose and the plan of God, the will of God. They're all as one when you're thinking of one because it's intelligent, predestinated power entirely. And it can be known but only through first being taught of God by the scriptures. That's the point of our Lord's words. Ye do err not knowing the scriptures. Let's say the Bible, the scriptures of God. 
and therefore nor the power of God. Now, it's obvious why this should be. As a youngster, I remember well that it came to me, I don't know how young it came to me, that um, this was absurd, that uh, in Christian thinking, God has put everything into a book. And I thought, why a book? Why would God write a book? If there has to be revelation, and does there have to be revelation, can man not figure out God for himself? Can he not understand or deduce from the universe and so on what God might be like? Why does he need a book and why should revelation take this curious form? And the more I thought about it, the more odd it seemed to be. But of course, it's, there's nothing strange or odd about it. You, something may have, of the kind may have crossed your mind too. It's inevitable. God must reveal himself. Let's take the things one at a time. He must reveal himself. There must be revelation in this world. A true revelation of God. Because God is a spirit. He is beyond our understanding. He is invisible to us. He is our creator. And so, as our creator, he is outside our realm, our universe. He is, in ever so many respects, bigger than we are, vaster than we are, beyond us. We cannot see him and grasp him and understand him. It is obvious that if there is a God, and if he has a purpose in creating mankind, as we are created, with a mind, with the power of reason, with creativity, with a soul, with an instinct for God and for eternity, vastly above the animals, if there is a God who has a purpose in such a creation, he must speak to us. It must be. I have not the intellect to grasp him otherwise. And in any case, it's not just a matter of intellect and my smallness and humanness, flesh and blood, dweller in time, my insignificance. It's a matter of the fact that I am a fallen being and a sinful being. And if God is there, he will be perfect, far, far above and beyond me. No, he must reveal himself. Yes, there's someone. I believe that. He must reveal himself. So why hasn't he revealed himself through all the religions that exist on the face of the earth? Isn't that the natural thing? And so many people believe this. They believe that there is somehow or other a revelation of God present in every religion. But this is impossible because they're so different and they contradict each other and they present to us quite, quite different ideas about God and radically different notions about how to touch him or to relate to him and different ethical standards. Just so many things are vastly different. It would make, mean God would have to be a very confused God 
which is impossible to try to reveal himself through such inadequate uh, religious forms as the religions of the world. No, you can't suppose that for a moment. We expect there to be many religions. We're not surprised that there are many religions. That is the evidence of the proof of a most significant thing, that man has been created as a worshipping being, that God has created mankind in order that men and women may worship him. And he's given them the instinct and the desire and the need for that. But unfortunately, man prefers to create his own religions and to do it his own way. So we're not surprised that with man's rebellious heart, he creates all manner of religions to satisfy his craving for something to worship. Sometimes he makes religions where, which involve idols or gods that are in his own image. You think of the world of the idols of old and the mythological idols of the past where gods fought each other, murdered each other, lied to each other, did unspeakable cruelties to each other, And you say these gods were just made in the image of those who created them, those who invented them. That's not a true revelation of God. That's a reflection of fallen man. And then other religions which are created to satisfy man's pride, really. Religions which say we can attain a relationship with God by our achievement and our own works and our own lives and good works and so on or religious exercises. I'm an incapable person. I can do it. I can satisfy God and reach him. They're religions of human pride that just satisfy our need and way of doing things. And then there are religions that are so permissive They're really an excuse to sin. And they allow so much. They don't have a strong ethical system at all. The very opposite. So there are hundreds of religions created by men. But don't expect God to speak through man's perverted and polluted creations to satisfy his own whims without bowing down to the true creator of all things. No, if there's a God in heaven and he's there and he's great and perfect and holy and he's interested in his creation, he will reveal himself. Then why a book? Well, again, it's fairly obvious. Would God reveal himself through only oral traditions? Well, that would be very unreliable. You know what happens when you pass a message around and how easily it gets mistaken, mistransmitted and so on. Oral traditions, nothing would be stable. Things would be continuously added and taken away. 
No, from earliest times, it shouldn't surprise us that God should inspire men, men who were reliable people, holy in their lives, to write down his message. The prophets of old, the leaders of God's people set aside, who functioned in this way, prophets, apostles, priests of old, through the godly ones, God spoke and there came into being the word of God. The great Hebrew tradition of scriptures of the past. Now how can we authenticate it? If God has committed his message to writing, how can we be sure that the Bible, the scriptures, are this divine word, this special word, which tell us the character of God, his purposes, his ways, the problem with mankind, how to relate to him, how to find him, how to get to him and reach him eternally. How can we validate or authenticate it? There must be revelation. You do err, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. Well, first of all, the Bible, but the Old Testament scriptures first, is the oldest claimed revelation of God in existence today. There are things that you might call forms of scripture that go back a long way, but not that present or even claim to be a word from the one true and living God. The oldest such claim is that of the Bible. And that's something to bear in mind, first of all. The oldest book in the Bible is probably the book of Job. The book of Job would have been written over 4,000 years ago. It's so sophisticated and developed, but there's nothing like it. Since that's the oldest portion of the Bible. Then came along the books of Moses, around 1400 BC. That's a long time ago. The scriptures began, they're rooted right back so far ago. There's nothing to match it. The Quran is less than 1400 years old. And the Quran is only about 40% the size of the Bible. And it's quite different in character in every way. But the Bible is perfect and huge and ancient. It has the superior claim from any point of view. Let's consider a number of things very quickly. The stance of the Bible. It is remarkable. If it were not the word of God, it would be so arrogant, this book. From cover to cover, it speaks as the word of God. It speaks as from God. The common phrase, thus saith the Lord, occurs thousands of times in the Bible. It's got the loftiest imaginable claims for itself. Even though composed by human instruments, and many of them 
over a period of about 1600 years, this claim that this is the word of God runs from beginning to end. Its stance marks it out, and its sentiments and expressions are entirely consistent with that claim throughout. It never forgets the Bible that it is speaking as from God. It never loses that stance throughout its length. It's not fables, it's history. It presents history in the Old Testament. It has one common message all the way through about Christ, prophesying, predicting him, telling of his work and his church, telling of his way of salvation, recording it, looking back on it, instructing those who believe in it. The one cable that runs through the Bible is Christ. The other cable is the way of salvation, the way to be reconciled with God. You, you look at the Bible as a whole, it's magnificent. Those two great cables run through practically every book. It stunts. Stunts, I could elaborate on this in many ways. You know, there's no book as honest as the Bible. So many of the Bible authors and writers that contribute to it, they are made in the Bible to disclose even their worst faults and failings. They tell you the truth about everything. It's a very blunt and direct book. There's no spin in the Bible. It says everything as it is. Its whole stance is as from God. And that's something to be greatly respected. I could speak for a little while, I won't, but about the authors. I've already mentioned them. The divine authors were people who were head and shoulders above others in godliness or commitment or dedication. They were leaders of the people and prophets and apostles. In the New Testament, most of the apostles were martyred for their faith. They were people who lived, for the most part, very simply. They lived out their convictions. The authors of the Bible are unimpeachable. There are so-called holy books in other faiths that are written by very bloodthirsty individuals and very cruel-sounding individuals. You will not find that in the Bible. Holy men of God spoke as of old. The instruments of the Bible are remarkable. We could talk about the Bible's unity. And this is one of the astonishing things. And the more you know about the Bible, the more you see it. It's unity of message throughout. The Bible has one theme I've mentioned, Christ. The books all agree on the view of God, the doctrines of the faith, Though the instruments that wrote the Bible were so different in different ages, yet there is no disagreement in the doctrine of God, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of salvation throughout the Bible. 
there is great unity of message. You couldn't do it if you organized it. If you had a vast book, only half the size of the Bible, written today by far fewer authors, and all were given a section to write on a certain theme of some subject, there would be collisions and contradictions and misunderstandings wholesale between them. It's inevitable in any collection of human works. There is. It is miraculous, the unity of message and its remarkable consistency on these great issues of doctrine and faith throughout the Bible. The unity of the Bible. I mentioned the book of Job 4,000 years ago. If you analyze the book of Job and you say, what's the theology of Job? What are the doctrines that, he, that are taught in the book of Job? And you list them all out and you compare those doctrines with the doctrines in Paul's magnificent epistle to the Romans. And there is total agreement, doctrinally. And yet those books, in terms of time, are so far apart in their composition. This is remarkable. This is amazing evidence of divine inspiration of divine guidance of the author, that this is the book of God, not the book of men. So we think of the unity of the Bible. Then you can go on, and I must hurry. You think of the explanations of the Bible, explanations about matters explained nowhere else in any literature worldwide. How to understand man and his nature and his behavior, the fact that he has a conscience, the great mystery of man, he has a conscience, yet he cannot obey it. He's full of sin. He disobeys his own conscience and fractures its standards constantly. How do you explain that? There's no literature in the world can explain that outside the explanation of the Bible, the fall of man and how it happened and what it's involved. It explains human nature. It explains, as I've mentioned already, the way of salvation. It explains God's policy behind creation. It explains the history of the world, why people behave as they do throughout history. It prophesies, well, we'll come to prophecies, things yet to take place, and its prophecies have always proved correct in the past. And we can come to prophecies. The Bible is a book of prophecies. We spent some time studying this recently in uh, one of our conferences. Prophecies of Christ, there are so many. No other person in human history has ever been prophesied apart from Christ so many times, in so many respects, with so much detail, and so many of them. And people don't realize the supernatural nature of the Bible, and of prophecy, and of the life of Christ. And it comes as a surprise when you explain it to people, just how much there is. There are short-term prophecies. The idea of those is to authenticate messengers, some of the prophets of old could prophesy things that would happen 
within a few weeks, within a few years. And those things took place, huge things, unpredictable things. And so the people knew we have a prophet in our midst who is truly inspired with words from God. God would often authenticate his messengers. Then there are medium-term prophecies, prophecies in the Old Testament about Christ that were all fulfilled with his coming. Then there are long-term prophecies about things even now yet to take place, the end of time, the end of the world. The Bible has many prophecies, but all those that have been fulfilled to the letter authenticated quite marvelously. Then we can talk about, and I'm only just touching on these things, the historicity of the Bible. Strange word coined in comparatively recent times. Well, the historicity of some, something means events which can be validated as real in time. All right, you've got the Old Testament. And it refers to many ancient civilizations. The time of Abraham, who lived in a city called Ur of the Chaldees, and so on. It refers to Egypt of old and tells you a great deal about it. It refers to the Assyrian Empire, and then the Babylonian Chaldean Empire, then the Medo-Persian Empire, and so on and so on. Well, are these things real? Are the Bible descriptions true? You know, in past years, there has been so much criticism of the Bible on a lot of these things. In the last century, in the century before, early in the last century, until various discoveries were made, it was common for the scholars to say, the Bible has all its names wrong. All the Old Testament kings have wrongly spelt names, wrongly constructed names. The people who wrote these books obviously weren't there or lived generations afterwards. They didn't really know what they were talking about. And they got this wrong and this wrong and this wrong. And then the great era of archaeological discovery, which stretched from the early 19th century, I'm talking about the great discoveries, right up until recent times, and time after time, it would be found that the scholars had it wrong, the critical scholars, that is, and the Bible was right all along. Now, all the place names of the Bible have been validated as correct, and contemporary spellings from unearthed monuments and so on, it's been Bible vindication all the way. The historicity of the Bible the events actually happened. The places are actually there. The sand has given up its treasures and it can be proved and demonstrated. And that's what much of the British Museum is about. The historicity of the Bible. We're privileged to live in the 21st century when the things which have been doubted by cynics are doubted no more and have to be regarded as facts. And factual, the Bible is historically accurate and true in all its great descriptions. We can talk about, time is not going to permit this, but we could talk about the preservation of the Bible. 
There is no literature like the Bible, which has been so remarkably preserved. We're used to hearing people say, oh, it's been copied, copy from copy from copy from copy, corruption of the text, alterations, and so on. That is so much nonsense and speculation. We have, for example, these days, over 5,000 Greek manuscripts or parts or bits and pieces, fragments, uncials and so on, of uh, the Bible in Greek. Some very small portions, several very long manuscripts. And uh, when they are combined together and compared with each other, and all the differences, copyists' differences, are taken into account, well over 95% of the text is in perfect agreement and can be established. It's what we call the majority text position. The majority of the texts agree on a reading, and the majority text position presents to us a Bible which is pretty well 95% guaranteed. That is astonishing. There's nothing else achieves a figure, anything like that. Literature and copies of literature, nothing like even a third as old as the Bible. Different texts wildly differ from each other. But there's so much agreement. So although there are differences... And scholars can haggle over the differences. The differences actually are a very small part. And more recently there was a comparison done. This is complex, so I shouldn't waste your time with it. There was a comparison done between the majority text and the latest modern critical text, which is a different approach to all these manuscripts, and there was only a 2% difference between them. It is remarkable how much agreement. Then I tell you one other little fact about it. As far as the differences are concerned, they do not affect any doctrine of the faith. That is astonishing. For a record of preservation, there must be a divine hand behind the preservation of the Bible without any doubt. We could talk about the purity of the Bible. We could talk about the ethics of the Bible. We could talk about the power of the Bible to change lives. This is a divine book. This is the book of God. There is nothing like it. It is the most published book in the whole of the world. There are vastly more copies of the Bible than anything else. I read a few days ago a little statistic that last year there were 25 million Bibles sold in America alone. It's still the way, way ahead bestseller and most distributed book worldwide of any literature. The book of God. People don't know these things. Translated into the most language, very nearly all the languages that there are, the most sold and the most attacked 
because it challenges man's sin and warns against human pride and leads to the Saviour. Never underestimate the Bible and it is the book by which we shall all be judged. It's the standards of this Bible and the ethics of this Bible and the principles of this Bible and the gospel of this Bible that God will put before us all in the last day when we have to give account of what we have said to God and whether we have sought him or rejected him and where we stand before him. But to look at it positively, and I close, it's the book that presents Christ who suffered and died on Calvary to bear the punishment of sin for all who trust in him and yield their lives to him. It's the book about Christ and how it changes your life and gives you new life and heaven and glory and the ability to pray and to know him and to serve him and love him. This is the book that calls us to God, calls us to repentance, and calls us to new life. Dear friends, there must be a revelation. Ye do err, said Christ Jesus, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. If you believe the scriptures and the message of salvation, you'll know the power of God. Let's pray together. Our loving Heavenly Father, look upon us all and help us this night. Show us thy way, O Lord. Draw us to thyself. Leave us not in ignorance and a lost condition, but visit us with thy great love and draw us to Christ, we ask it in his name, for his sake. Amen.